Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker and folks on today's show, we are honored to have with us Brian Dimitrovic. How's it going, Ron? Really good, Ed. I can't believe this. We have Brian today and, uh, you know, Arthur Laffer has been a hero of mine forever. And we have George Gilder coming on next week. So this is like supply side heaven. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> let's, well, let's let's jump right into it. I'll read his bio on the way in and we'll get to get to his book. Brian Jamitovic is an intellectual historian interested in the history and development of supply side economics. He is the author of six books beginning with the now standard history of supply side economics, econoclasts, and extending to the history of, of ta income tax, which the book we're going to talk about today, Taxes Have Consequences, co-authored with Arthur Laffer and Gene, uh, and I didn't ask you about this one, Sequefeld, is that correct, Brian? Sinkfield. Sinkfield, okay, Sinkfield, okay, there we go. Um, he has been a professor at institutions in Texas, my home state, Colorado, and is the Richard S. Strong Scholar at the Laffer Center in Nashville. He has a PhD in history from Harvard University. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Brian Dimitrovic. Ed Ron, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, first, I'm going to start not, I guess it's not really at the beginning, but quite some time ago, um, a quote, higher taxes frequently afford a smaller revenue to the government than what might be drawn from more moderate taxes. That's uh, from Adam Smith, an inquiry into the nature of causes of, of, of wealth of nations, 1776. Uh, Brian, how come we still don't understand this? <laughs> Well, I mean, we understood that for a long time. Uh, in the 19th century, you, you could easily argue that that was the principal idea motivating debate in Congress. I mean, when the tariff was the principal tax system in the United States all the way up to 1913, the creation of the income tax, all they ever did in Congress was ask whether this new tariff duty was for revenue or prohibitive, what we today would call the Laffer curve. So if we've forgotten it, we've only forgotten it in the last 100 years because it's it was a constant from 70, 1776 for 100 some years. And that, that's the interesting part is that we now get to the Laffer curve. And um, I want to play a clip for you, which I'm sure you've heard before. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this. This is a, a favorite of, of mine and many of my generation. So let's bring this on and I'll get this playing. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the, anyone, anyone, the Great Depression, passed the... Anyone? Anyone? A tariff bill, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act, which anyone raised or lowered, raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenue for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone know the effects? It did not work, and the United States sank deeper into the Great Depression. Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before? The Laffer Curve. Anyone know what this says? It says that at this point, 
on the revenue curve, you will get exactly the same amount of revenue as at this point. This is very controversial. Does anyone know what Vice President Bush called this in 1980? Anyone? Something D-O-O economics. Voodoo economics. Uh, why did why did President Bush or Vice President at the time call it voodoo economics, Brian? Yeah, we have uh, some pretty good evidence oh, on, oh. on that point. Um, we know so President Bush said that in uh, April of 1980, uh, and it was based on a memorandum that was given to him by uh, his economist Paul McElvoy, and the uh, this economist from Dartmouth who was on the Bush team estimated that the Kemproth 30% tax cut would cause a point-for-point increase in the rate of inflation. So there would be a 30% additional rate of inflation. And, and inflation in April 1980 was running at 20%. So when Bush said voodoo economics, he meant that inflation would become 50% because of the Kemproth tax cut. I mean, that's a wildly inaccurate prognostication. So I, in my view, <laughs> Voodoo economics should go down as one, you know, one of the worst predictions in, in economic history. But it, it's, you know, some reason it still retains its positive reputation. Sure. But let's back up a little bit and let's talk about this this Laffer curve thing. Um, we, we probably have all heard it. As I said, every one of my generation has seen that movie and remembers that scene with Ben Stein. Well, uh, give the overall what what is the Laffer curve? What is its what is its state? And in fact, Ben really says what it is, but a little bit elaborate on it a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And it's funny uh, that the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off 1984 uh, represents the Laffer curve as being something boring that kind of regular regular people aren't interested in because it was the exact opposite. I mean, the Laffer curve took off like a rocket in the popular press. I mean, it's covered in People magazine, Women's Wear Daily. I mean, everybody loved it and they hated you know, conventional economics, but they loved the Laffer curve. So that's the kind of game that Ferris Bueller's Day Off is playing. Uh, kind of denying the, the reality or misrepresenting it in the 100% opposite. Okay. The Laffer curve is just a simple uh, representation of tax rates, uh, the tax rate against tax revenues. And it starts at zero tax rates, goes to 100% tax rate with the revenue curve on the other side. And as the rate goes up from zero, revenues go up, 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 up. And then as the rate gets past a certain point, the revenues go down, 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 down. So it's a McDonald's arch laying on its side tax rates on the up and down axis and tax revenues on the across. And this is the uh, now what the, the other funny thing is, and Ron and I have an ongoing joke on on this show about this, is whenever you see it quoted in the press, it's always, quote, the discredited Laffer curve, which I find hysterical. In fact, if you Google that in 0.48 seconds, you will get 581 results. <laughs> That say, yeah. say this. And it's not discredited at all. This just seems to be a myth that's taken off or, or something. Maybe it's not even myth. Maybe it's just people's just repeating it over and over again to try to discredit it. Yeah, I notice that, of course, all the time that people say it's you know, the, the two favorite passive voice uh, verbs are discredited and debunked. And I use the term passive voice advisedly because if you tried to put that in the active voice, um, you couldn't finish the sentence. Well, who discredited it? You know, X discredited the left curve and nobody did. So it's always a mysterious agency. Uh, yeah. So if you go on Google Scholar, for example, uh, the Laffer curve uh, is just a workhorse of modern economics. I mean, there's something there are a couple hundred articles really every year. Uh, we're trying to specify the Laffer curve or use the Laffer curve in academic economic analysis. Uh, the highest honor, the highest honor in global academia is probably the Harvard honorary degree. 
And Emmanuel Sias of Berkeley was awarded a Harvard honorary degree, specifically, the citation said, for his discovery of the optimal tax rate, which he called the Laffer rate. Now, he named it at 73%, but that's absurd. But he said he was doing Laffer curve analysis and got a Harvard honorary degree for it. So how that's consistent with being discredited, I have no idea. Yeah, really, really crazy. And you write in your book, um, tax, the re- tax reported top income goes down when tax rates are at the at the are high and goes up when tax rates are at the at or, I'm sorry tax rates are at the top are low. So it, this is the finding of your book over and over again. You take this throughout the course of history, and it's in my view completely undeniable. But I did want to ask you th- this question: What about um, tax rates in relationship to spending? Isn't spending really ultimately the problem and not necessarily the tax per se? Yeah, I mean. Government spending is, you know, really just made up of a couple components. I mean, it's uh, it's it's government contracts, uh, it's government transfer payments, and it's government purchases. Um, and those things, each each of them, kind of distort, you know, the normal operation of the economy. I mean, if a business is trying to go after government contracts, you, know, you might ask, well, what's wrong with you? Can't you make it in the real world? Uh, transfer <laughs> payments are kind of famous for making sure people don't work. And government procurement, uh, you know, is bureaucracy city. So uh, yeah, the spending is just going to kind of be a blank, a wet, wet blanket on the economy. And the the bigger it is, yeah, the bigger the, the more more force that wet blanket has. And there's another, uh, and you uh, you refer to it as a publishing phenomena. This is uh, the book by Thomas uh, Piketty, uh, mm-hmm. Capital in the 21st Century, mm-hmm. and it sold over 20 million or two million copies. And its central feature was the U curve, which I want you to talk about, and then we'll contrast the U curve with the Laffer curve. I, I do want to point out though that there's it was a story uh, that I read, I think in Forbes, that while it did sell over two million copies, very few people actually read it, according to. <laughs> Amazon, <laughs> because they said they could tell that people only got up to about page five or six <laughs> yeah, on Amazon Kindle and stopped. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's totally believable. I mean, I'll tell you one <laughs> anecdote about that. So Larry Kudlow and I were doing an event um, well, when our book on JFK and the Reagan Revolution came out in 2016 at a bookstore in New York. Uh, you, you see it on C-SPAN or on book TV. And uh, there was a huge display of capital in the 21st century. Uh, with readers' copies right there for everyone to look at when they walked into this bookstore in Manhattan, and we took up the main readers' copy display, and when we open it, crack! Yeah. So <laughs> I can only I can only verify that uh, you know he sold copies, but they weren't cracked. Well, and then talk a little bit about his finding in what is the central feature of this this the famous U-shaped curve that he came up with. Sure. So Thomas. Piketty and Emmanuel Saez, dating back to 2003, their original research. These are Emmanuel Saez is at Berkeley. He's the one who got the Harvard honorary degree for the Laffer curve. Thomas Piketty, his collaborator, they're both French. He's in France. So in this huge book, they had done this research nine years before. He published a book in 2014, sold two million copies. So it said there's a U-shaped curve of inequality over the history of the income tax. So prior to 1913, when the income tax started, inequality was very high. And his measure was like the top 1% took about 20, 25% of total income in the nation. And then it went down big time in the 30s and 40s, such that the the side of the U was high. And then it went down to 10%, one, top 1% took 10% national income. And then when Reagan cut tax rates in the 1980s, whoop, up went the U again on the other side, and the top 1% took 20% of income again. 
Now, what I find interesting is you write in the book that there appears to be a correlation. Inequality goes up with low tax rates and go down with high tax rates. But of course, as we know, these high tax rates hurt the rich. But what they did not earn, uh, but what they did not earn, they did not fully report. So I do, I, do I have this right? High tax rates on the rich cause them to shelter income so that they pay less taxes. So income inequality is shown to go down. However, because the rate on everyone goes up, the wealthy end up paying more or wealthy end up paying or the less wealthy end up paying more in taxes because they can't shelter income. Yeah, no, all that's true. So let me tell you. So obviously my principal co-author is Arthur Laffer and his, uh, you know, of course, central uh, constant contributions to the book. But among them, the most important one is the one that you just summarized. And this is what Arthur Laffer says now repeatedly is the theme of the book. When tax rates at the top are raised, there are three reactions from high earners. Number one, they earn less income. Okay, you're going to have higher tax rates, right? We'll earn less income. But number two, they shelter what they earn. Okay, what we do earn, we're going to shelter from taxation. And number three, the poor are worse off. All those things happen every time. So in the 1930s, when the tax rates went from 25 to 79%, the rich earn less income, man, did they shelter their income and the poor worst time in history. And that's the, that's the pattern throughout the entire income tax era. Right. Well, this is fantastic. But Brian, we're already up against our first break. Want to remind our folks that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We're going to have our break, which is sponsored by Melio, an accounts payable solution that both you and your clients will love. Go to melio.com slash TSOE to get started for free. And now a word from those sponsors and Melio. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for us at keyword voice America. Accountants and bookkeepers, listen up. Save time by streamlining your customers' payables with Melio. Melio lets you make all your customers' business payments on one simple dashboard. There's no monthly fees, and you can send ACH transfers for free. Best of all, Melio syncs with your accounting software, so everything is organized. Do yourself and your customers a favor. Join Melio so you can spend less time on payments and more time growing your firm. Visit melio.com accountants for more information. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash time's up. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well, welcome back everybody we're here with brian dimitrovic and he is the co-author of taxes have consequences and income tax history of the united states came out this year and brian of course i'm a recovering cpa who used to do taxes so i i thoroughly enjoyed this book it was a great uh, historical romp through this but one of the things i just wanted to kind of level set this because you guys make a really great point very early in the book and i've i've argued with so many people about this point that I don't care what you call an income tax or, or tax. I'm sorry. It's all, in, they're all income taxes because you guys point out a person's consumption, investments, gifts, wealth, all come from their income. Hence, shouldn't all taxes be called income taxes? No, I'm very sympathetic with that view. In, in fact, I, I push the question of, what, of tax incidents. So when we talk about uh, you know, taxes being raised or lowered across the board on individuals. Well, most of those taxes are processed through payroll and companies have to pay salaries at such a range that their employees will work for them for after-tax money. So it's difficult to say that actually employers don't bear the entire burden of income taxation, including their own employees' income taxation, because the labor markets wouldn't clear unless they paid salaries high enough to cover their workers' income tax payments. So when you think of it that way, I think you really realize that, you know, income taxes affect how much people will make the decision to hire others. And when you get to that point, then you realize you're you're right there in terms of what matters in the economy. Right. And the other thing is, and I just love this, the book takes on the myth that World War II ended the Great Depression. And you lay out an alternative theory that tax rate cuts in 1945 especially at the top, were lowered, plus an epic decline in government spending is what actually ended the Great Depression. Yeah, Can you explain Arthur, that? Sure. And one of it, Arthur Laffer's major contributions in this book uh, was taking on that myth of World War II solved the Great Depression. This is, and this was mainly his work in, in the book. Uh, he, he pointed out that, I mean, during World War II, uh, when when GDP went way up in World War II, uh, ex-defense GDP went way down and you had hours worked go way up. So you had working like crazy for take-home pay that didn't exist. You hadn't seen that kind of working for nothing since before the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. It is true that you know the, the product that was produced was military, but in terms of standard of living, it didn't exist. So if you had to have a recovery from the Great Depression, you had to get beyond the World War II economy. That was nothing like a real economic recovery. But then federal spending from 1944 to 1946, just two years, went down by 75%. It went from 43% of GDP to 11% of GDP. Unemployment then went to 4%, below 4%. 
this is the Great Depression era when we're used to unemployment always at 17, 19, 25. Here it is at four, three years in a row, 46, 47, 48. There was a tax cut January 1st, 1946, and then a much bigger one in April 1948. And they had everything to do with post-war prosperity. Why do you think the myth that World War II ended the Depression is still being touted and believed? Well, for Franklin Delano Roosevelt's presidency to be salvaged, uh, one of two things has to have worked to solve the Great Depression. Either the New Deal has to have solved the Great Depression or World War II has to have solved the Great Depression. So nobody believes anymore that the New Deal solved the Great Depression. So that eliminates Roosevelt's first chance. So if World War II didn't solve the Great Depression, then then FDR's presidency was a complete failure economically. And I, I don't know where academia and the kind of establishment commentators, I don't know where their resources are to call FDRs a failed economic presidency. So they kind of cling to World War II. I mean, the other reason is, of course, the nominal numbers. If you look at nominal, you know, just real GDP, I mean, it increased fantastically uh, from 1942 to 1945, 41 to 44. But again, if you abstract out defense spending, so just goods and services that people can use at home, ordinarily what the standard of living is, um, it was lower than during the Great Depression. So that's not really solving the Great Depression. To have solved the Great Depression, you have to have a, an increase in the standard of living. And that only came with the tax cut era of 1945 to 48. Right. You can't eat a tank, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's great. You can move, you know, the Soviet communism can do that. I mean, the United States did very well in its production, sure. But if you want to talk about recovery from the Great Depression, you have to talk about more than employment and conscription in the military. You have to talk about standards of living. The other thing I really appreciate is just how you laid this out decade by decade and going back to the start of the income tax in 1913. And then, of course, it didn't it jump up to like 77 percent during World War One and Wilson's administration. And even Wilson and his Treasury Secretary, Carter Glass, who you quote in the book, they admitted that high rates passed the point of productivity, didn't they? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, the Democrats weren't necessarily in favor of a, of a, a soaking income tax. I mean, the rich, the Democrats had always been interested in, you know, rates that were pretty flat. I mean, that was the Henry George movement. I mean, it was the Republican Whig tariff that always had these kind of differential rates that were high on certain people for political favors. And the Democrats weren't part of that tradition. So Ro Wilson raised the top tax rate unconscionably high, right, up to 77 percent, seven, seven, seven in 1918, but it was World War I for Pete's sake. And then, you know, he immediately realized that all sorts of businesses were starved for capital. So he had three successive treasury secretaries, you know, William McAdoo, uh, Carter Glass, and uh, Houston, along with their assistant Leffingwell, who carried the whole thing through to, to Coolidge and uh, even Eisenhower, uh, saying, you know, we've got to reduce these rates. So in 1920, his, his presumptive nominee for the Democratic party nomination, William McAdoo, was just going around the country saying, we have to cut tax rates. Democrats didn't nominate him. He was supposed to be nominated. They nominated Cox with Roosevelt as the uh, running mate. And, uh, you know, they weren't convincing enough on that score. And then explain uh, Andrew Mellon, Brian, because I he's my he's another one of my heroes. His book, Taxation, the People's Business, came out in 1924. Explain what Andrew Mellon did. Yeah, Andrew Mellon is yeah, he's one of my all-time favorites too. I would say my favorite business book of, of all time is his father's autobiography, Thomas Mellon and His Times, mm. from eighteen eighty-eight. Amazing economic reflection on the American awesome. Industrial Revolution. Um, so yeah, Andrew Mellon became Treasury Secretary. He's probably the richest man in the country outside of John D. Rockefeller. 
1921. And um, he knew what he was doing with his money. I mean, he he wasn't uh, he wasn't furnishing all sorts of capital to businesses 1918 to 1921 because the top tax rate was you know 73 percent or 77 percent and he knew exactly what he himself was doing i'm hoarding it i'm putting it in municipal bonds that are untaxable and then he just started to see conditions deteriorate in two particular industries in in housing which co- which requires constant refurbishment on the part of the owners and in railroads you know which requires constant <laughs> refurbishing and he's just started those two classic areas of american decline and slums in the 20th century you see them start to decline right when that income tax is put in so when mellon is secretary of the treasury he's just like well i know all the rich people and i'm one of them and i know how they act at this rates they're trying to shelter their income so we have to get these tax rates down and then the rich will pull their money out of shelters and put it to work in this economy and that's exactly what happened, isn't it? When you look at the numbers that you guys document so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, Brian, we get into the 1930s, and you just methodically lay out the Smoot-Harley Tariff Act, the Revenue Act of 1932, excise taxes, Social Security taxes, and then the, the explosion in state and local taxes. And you come to the conclusion that this is what caused the Great Depression. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, especially the state uh, part of it. I. I don't know, to tell you the truth, how we could have missed the elephant in the room for this long. I mean, never before had the United States had even a tariff as high as it was in 1930. The first time in June 1930, the tariff was passed, easily the highest tariff in American history. Okay, so that's the high, and the tariff had carried the load of American taxation before then. So essentially, right now, we have the highest taxes in American history just by the tariff. In addition, we had a 25% income tax, which we had never had before, before 1915. Okay, so not only do you have the highest tariff, you have a brand new income tax that's taking upwards of 25% of income. Moreover, you are then going to raise that income tax to 63% at the top in January 1st, 1932, while the deflation makes the tariff even more severe. So you have by January 1932, a displacement across the economy of a tax system that has absolutely no like in American history. And we haven't even begun to talk about the state and local tax impositions at that time, which were beyond historic. So ultimately, it's going to become very difficult for me to do historiography and say why we have been told causes other than taxation for the Great Depression. That's how central they were at the outset. Oh, you know, this is when I was young and naive, I bought into Milton Friedman's cause that well look the money supply was shrunk by one third between 29 and 33 but oh is it much deeper than that isn't it yeah you know so arthur laffer my co-author uh he was a very good friends and uh, colleagues on the faculty colleagues at the university of chicago with milton friedman and so these debates uh with him with our co-author of this book go back literally with milton friedman in the years immediately following his publication of his work on this you know 1965 he published the book the great contraction 1967, Arthur Laffer joined the faculty at the University of Chicago with Milton Friedman. So they were having these debates about, well, of course, the money supply went down because if nobody goes to the bank to get money bank loans because the tax rates are 63 percent, there's no expansion of the money supply. So naturally, the money supply goes down when there are high taxes because there's no demand for money. And Arthur Laffer thought that point was clear enough in 1970, 1967. um, We still have to make it, you know, push it uphill in, in 2022. 
Well, this book is a great contribution to that. So, Brian, this is great. I'm really wonking out here. I love it. Um, folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel. That is at patreon.com slash TSOE. And that channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Got 90 Minds? Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. The book is Taxes Have Consequences, an Income Tax History of the United States. And we have one of the co-authors, Brian Dimitrovic, with us today. And Brian, I should have asked you to clarify this at the break, but do you can you tell the story? Is this one of your story of the the wealthy gentleman and the celebrity doctor in pre-Thatcher Britain? Yes. About what would, Certainly. Would you mind it is, sharing it, that? Yeah. It is Arthur Laffer's story uh, from when he was going to Britain all the time, seeing uh, Mrs. Thatcher. Um, so yes, it's a great story. Tax rates were very high in Great Britain, upwards of 98% in the 1970s at the very top. And so there was a kind of a story that went around London uh, circles back then about two wealthy gentlemen, uh, one who needed his appendix out or something like that. And he was talking to his doctor and his doctor said, well, I have to charge you uh, a million pounds. It was a million pounds. Uh, yeah, do you realize what, what it would take me to pay you a million pounds? I'd have to make 50 million pounds at the 98% tax rate. And the doctor said, well, of course, I have to charge a million pounds because that's the only way I can I can clear two percent of that. Uh, so they thought about it and they said, well, why don't we just do it and clear it with a case of scotch, you know, just through, via barter. And uh, that's what we'll do. And that was an example of real income and consumption of the rich uh, going s- sub the tax system, sub the monetary tax system when tax rates are very high sheltering. 
So you were talking earlier with Ron and made an interesting point that perhaps we can really think that all uh, uh, taxes are paid by, in some way, through by, by the corporation by either increasing ta- uh, their prices, etc., and flowing through. Where do you think that taxation should happen? Well, I, I assume you're not like me, a libertarian who thinks that taxations are theft. So, <laughs> so, um, so where sh- should taxation be? Should it be at the individual level? Should it be at the corporate level? Should we go back to tariffs or apportionment tax? What What do you think should be? The, the ideal system of taxes. I can give you my own personal views, which I might say are a little, little idiosyncratic, but I'll first give you uh, Dr. Laffer's views. Arthur Laffer uh, has designed a, what he calls a complete flat tax, uh, a tax on all personal income, no exemptions at 12%, 11%, and the same thing on business net sales. This is the tax plan he did for Jerry Brown in 1992 when he was running for president. Um, and he said, you just eliminate all tax distortions. And I think it's a great idea. I'm a little bit more um, kind of motivated by uh, Henry George and Robert Mundell, who you know, basically argued that if the United States is the dominant world economy, there's absolutely no reason for it to have a tax system um, because everyone wants the dollar. I mean, it's easily the most preferred currency around the world, has been since 1945. What do you need a tax system for? Just you know, have a small amount of procurement and you'll produce as many dollars as the world needs without inflation, of course, because the world has huge demand for the dollar. I think if the United States eliminated its tax system, the demand for the dollar would absolutely soar. And if so, well, then just produce it uh, without tax system. So yeah, I, I, I think the tax rate should be zero. Wow, that I like this idea. That's really interesting. Um, how did, did he, uh, Arthur Laffer, I'm referring to, calculate that Laffer rate, that 12% rate? Is that his calculation of the thing that you mentioned earlier, the guy that said it was 73% or something? Yeah, yes, that is. I mean, he, that's the work he did with Jerry Brown. And ultimately, it, it corresponds to if the, if the government wants it, 22% of GDP, you're kind of taxing income twice, you're taxing business income, which is net income of the country, plus corporate income, uh, plus individual income. Uh, but you can set the rate. I mean, who you probably don't want 22% of GDP is government spending. Uh, so just whatever that GDP rate is, uh, divide it by half and just have a, a, an income tax at that rate with no deductions in a corporate rate uh, on net sales with no deductions. And would that be on dollar one, even for the for people, say, at the, the poverty line, yeah, et cetera? It would be. It would okay. be. And so, you know, you're talking about a maximum tax rate of, say, 10%, which is, you know, what our bottom rate is right now anyway. And uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to subsidize people, then go ahead and subsidize them with those receipts. Uh, but don't don't have any distortions. I mean, a tax system with distortions is automatically inefficient. So just get rid of all distortions in the tax system. Right. I think the argument goes. I'd get curious to get your reaction that that we we need we need taxation now because to compete with the state corporatism that's happening in say China and Russia and all of that stuff. The, I guess your reaction to that is. Well, not if we produce dollars that we <laughs> send send out throughout the world, but elaborate on that a little bit. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that, that the, my opponents would have to explain the argument that we need taxation to be competitive. I have heard that argument over the years. We heard that <laughs> more, they're more competitive because of high tax rates. I think John Kenneth Galbraith basically said made that argument in the new industrial state. Uh, of course, I, I don't set any store in that. Um, on the Chinese case, I mean, ad- admirable as the Chinese uh, economic miracle has been, um, Chinese currency doesn't have any soft power. You don't see people around the world just clamoring to you know, denominate their assets in Chinese RMB. I mean, that's something that's uh, very rare in economic history that you can just get people spontaneously, organically, without coercion saying, I want that currency. The United States is in that absolutely enviable position 
And it's a shame it doesn't take advantage of it by really lowering its tax system. What's been their reaction to the book? What have you heard? I, I actually tried to look for a negative review on Amazon and yeah. one doesn't exist yet. So I'm sure there's I'm sure there will be some at some point. Yeah. So uh, the book has been reviewed, but I'm afraid only lightly uh, out of its first 30 days. Uh, the 30th day, I think, was yesterday. But so the book's been out for one month. It is selling quite well, I must say. Um, uh, so the tax notes uh, had a, say, uh, a somewhat uh, complicated review uh, from Joe Thorndike, uh, the great director of the Tax History Project. And um, he said that it was not a history of the income tax, but a history of tax rates. And that was his major point. And I kind of said, oh, that's interesting. Well, why wouldn't the history of the income tax be the history of tax rates? Do you mean there's more to the income tax code than just tax rates? You mean we don't pay at the published rates? How can that be? Um, wow, that's actually very interesting that there's a, a huge history of the income tax that's not tax rates. And I actually think that's what our book is. Our book is the backstory behind the rates. Um, and there have been a couple other uh, comments uh, favorable in the press. So I'm waiting for uh, the Piketty Saez team to respond, but haven't heard from them yet. <laughs> haven't heard from them yet. Okay, <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, talk a little bit about the, the story of another person that we occasionally lampoon on here, Warren Buffett and his whole, well, I pay less tax rate than my, my secretary. This isn't right, et cetera. Now, that's an astonishing argument that Warren Buffett makes. Now, this is, again, this, this part of the book was Arthur Laffer's baby, and he did great work on this. And the first thing he says is that Warren Buffett is very admirable in many important ways. First of all, as a business person, and then second of all, making public not only his tax returns, but also his opinions on his tax returns. And we say, in all sincerity, thank you very much. It's very nice. Now, we think he comes to the wrong conclusions, but we have to thank Warren Buffett for providing his tax returns and his comments on them. Okay, so Warren Buffett says, 2010, 2011, that he's only paying a 17% tax rate, and everyone else in his office is paying you know, higher than that, 20% secretaries, administrators. All right. Well, we did the math and realized he has grossly understated his income. Uh, you know, he said he paid $7 million and that was a 17% tax rate. Well, that means his income was 39 million. His AGI would have probably been 62 million. And we're like, Warren Buffett, whose income, whose wealth increased by $10 billion that year, said his income was 62 million. No, I mean, his income was at least 10 billion because his net worth increased by that much. So his tax rate really was not 17%. He didn't pay 7 million on 39 million. He paid 7 million on 12 billion. So his tax rate is six one hundredths of one percent. So it's far lower than what he says. And you know, if you have high tax rates, you're going to get those kind of shenanigans. Yeah. Again, because it's a movie. And my my reaction to that, and and what others like him is, you know, if you really think that you didn't pay enough, pay.gov. They they will take your money. Like, well, yeah. Now we know that Warren Buffett does not uh, adhere to that because his gifts to the Bill and Melinda Gift, uh, Gates Foundation include the rider that if the tax laws change. Like if there's a tax elimination on uh, unrealized capital gains, he gets his money back from the foundation. Really? I did yeah. not know so, that. <laughs> you know, there's that. Uh, and I'm constantly surprised by people who, who say, well, I don't think I pay enough. Well, you can just make your own, own contribution. Well, it, it doesn't work like that. Well, why not? Like, I, I just don't understand. <laughs> and I, I'm afraid there are some people who do that. So. Yeah, you know, it, it's not examples. it's not that much, though. I was surprised. I went, went in and I looked at it a couple of years ago and it really is. Not that okay. much. <laughs> so 
So, well, what about the 21st century? Uh, what, what, what is that going to bring in terms of yet that one of the last sections of the early uh, chapter two is tax avoidance in the 21st century? What's happening now? Yeah. So the uniqueness of the 21st century in terms of fiscal and monetary policy is spending. So tax rates have not been particularly you know, really stratospherically high. In fact, they were kind of in the average of the Reagan reform range. I mean, Reagan took the top tax rate first to 50 and then to 28%. Average of that is about 37, 39, which is what it's been in the 2000s. Yeah, Obama increased the capital gains rate and some other things, and Clinton lifted the cap on payroll taxes, Medicare. All right. Um, what has changed in the 21st century is spending. Uh, the inflection point is the year 2000. You know, spending increased above its historic par in the early 2000s, shot up in 2008 with the Great Recession, did not recapture its old levels, and then it shot up again in COVID. So the big change in the 21st century is the aggregate level of federal spending. And then the other big change is permanent slowdown in GDP. Uh, since the 2000 peak, less than 2% growth. No period like and that's through 2019, let alone 2022. No long period in American history was sub 2% growth. So I associate that sub 2% growth for the long term with the secular change of, in 2000, which was the permanent rise in federal spending. Well, my, I, we only have about a, uh, 90 seconds before our break, and I want to ask you th this question. Um, tell me what your thoughts on government-based digital currency are, and why is it a bad idea? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, Bitcoin, you talk about soft power. Yeah, you know, I mean, I've never seen soft power like Bitcoin. You know, here's this nothing that just, you know, just the, the world just embraces. I mean, it becomes a cult, a cult-like appeal. And I might even say the same for Ethereum. Um, so, you know, if the government wants to come in and make an iPhone. I mean, it's just going to be a disaster. So, I mean, I, I welcome you. Yeah, go ahead and try the central bank digital currency. I mean, but you just have no capability of soft power and Bitcoin has all the capability of soft power. So you just, you'll, you'll get your brains beat in CB, you know, central banks on that one. Yeah. Well, it'd be pretty scary what they could do too. Cause then it's just like, oh, we're just going to, since we know who has the money everywhere, we'll just take it when we want to. Just, you know, let, let, let Bitcoin be Bitcoin. Let just realize that you can't compete with it, you know? <laughs> No, absolutely. Well, Brian, thanks. Uh, Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home, but I want to appreciate, uh, uh, say, I appreciate you appealing, appearing with us today. Uh, but remind folks that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website again, thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also go to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE, where you can guess what? rate this podcast. And we'd love for you to do that, not only rate it, but also write a quick review and that helps other people find the show. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! Hey folks, Ed here. Ron is far too modest to tell you about his new book with Paul Dunn, so I'm just going to have to go ahead and do it. Scheduled to release on December 8th, Time's Up, the subscription business model for professional firms, is going to rock the world like the firm of the future did two decades ago. While you can't get the book until December, you can join the pre-order club by buying the book and sending us your receipt. Benefits start in August and will continue through February. For more details, visit thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We were here with Brian Dimitrovic, and he's the co-author of Taxes Have Consequences. And But I'll tell you, if you're a CPA, you're going to want to read this book. It's a rollicking ride through uh, the history of taxation in the United States. And Brian, I want to go back to the 1930s with you. You talk about unindicted co-conspirators in the causes of the Great Depression. The state and local government spending permanently rose. And the numbers are astonishing to me that the state and local government spent in 1920, 5.1% of GDP. And in 1933, 14.2% of GDP. That's amazing. No, yeah, the the unindicted co-conspirators of the Great Depression causing that event uh, were state state and local governments. Um, the story I shouldn't say is untold because historians like David Beto told the story completely in the 1980s. There's just been it's just been ignored. Um, so what we have to remember about the income tax is that it had one major exemption from the outset. So the income tax was started at federal level in 1913. And it exempted the financing instruments of state and local governments. So municipal bonds were not to be taxed in their coupon payments. So once tax rates at the federal level got high, beginning in 1918, 77%, I mean, the rich just plowed money like crazy into municipal bonds. So state and local governments found that they could finance themselves to a much greater degree than the past. So even in 1920, state governments were much bigger than they had been. And then they grew and grew and grew throughout the 20s because you still had a 25% top rate. And all sorts of people, I mean, Mrs. Dodge, $50 million, 1920, just put all of it in municipal bonds. So what happened though, uh, is that with bonds, you have to make coupon payments. And so states weren't used to managing this. And so they started just maxing out on issuing bonds and then realized we have to, we have to figure out how to pay for it. Um, and so they were very aggressive in trying to collect property taxes in 1930, 31, 32, because that's how they paid the coupons on all these new bonds. Well, the prices were collapsing in the Great Depression, and yet the, you know, here were the property tax authorities trying to collect. So there were tax strikes throughout the country, especially in Chicago, but really everywhere throughout the country, such that state and local tax collections were probably 
80% of all tax collections in the United States in 1932. Federal government, only 20%. Well, this is what caused the housing foreclosure crisis, and this is what caused the banking crisis, if you really want to know. I mean, if property taxes are just going to be huge in 1930, 31, 32, of course, you're going to have a foreclosure crisis. And if mortgages aren't going to pay, which they're not because they're foreclosed, there's going to be a banking crisis. There you are. And then how did the states react? The states actually saw this. Holy heck, our localities have bankrupted the country. So they said they, they would relieve localities of the burden of taxation and themselves impose state income and sales taxes. And that's what they started doing big time. In 1928, not one state in the United States had a general sales tax. Yeah. You know, you talk about the property tax revolts of the 30s, making Prop 13 out here in California look like child's play. It's it, it's dramatic. I mean, I can't imagine in the 30s all of these taxes being imposed and, and, not, and not just the income and the sales tax and the property tax, but you talk about excise taxes and employment taxes. A, a, a pure, we're, trying, were we trying to tax our way to prosperity? Well, one, one point we make as kind of an aside in the book is that, you know, Prop 13 does look a little puny in comparison to the phenomenal, constant, popular, low working class tax revolts of the 30s. And that's because Prop 13 was successful. That's the grim reason. There's a tax revolt in California in 1978. What happened? They got the measure passed 65 to 30 right away. And those taxes were cut by 60% immediately. There was no such reaction in the 30s. There was this mass working class tax revolt and it never got anywhere. The only thing that happened is that there were tax shifts and new tax impositions, new sales taxes, new income taxes to replace property taxes. So one of the reasons the tax revolts were so long and so grim in the 1930s is they never got results. Jeez. And then when we move into the post-World War II era, especially when uh, I guess it was Eisenhower who brought back some of the high top, top rates because of the Korean War, and then you you list all the different ways that the top 1% avoided these high rates. They, they weren't paying these 91% rates. Can you talk about some of the strategies they deployed to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing that we lionize the 1950s as we might about you know, an era of high tax, high tax rates and prosperity. I mean, all business put all priority in the 1950s on avoiding high tax rates. So we go into just innumerable examples. Let's go through one of them. I mean, how executives designed their own contracts and they designed them so that the company would pay out as much as it could in cash because the company got to deduct all compensation from the corporate rate, which was 52%. And so corporations were very clear that the federal government is paying half your salary. Great. So we'd like to pay you as much as possible. But the executive doesn't want to get as much up that progressive tax letter because it ladder because it goes all the way to 91%. So they found the happy medium where exactly the company was paying as much as the executive was getting, which is usually about $75,000, $80,000, you know, call it, you know, a million dollars today. And then all further compensation to the executive would be of some other fashion. Very often it was deferred. So you would get paid for 10 or 20 years after you retired. And if you died, you got a lump sum. And that was not subject to ordinary rates. In fact, it could be structured that it was completely untaxable. Now, what I've just described to you is the tip of the iceberg in terms of how top executives avoided taxation, because it was the national pastime of the top 1% in the 1950s. You know, you talk about the three martini lunches and the art and the country clubs and all of that, but you made a point about the the corporate jets, 
they were seven times more than the airline's schedule. Yeah, I mean, that, nobody had money. Nobody had marginal income at that time for things like flying on airplanes. Uh, so it ha- the only way you could fly on airplanes is if you could game the tax system. Again, all corporate expenses were deductible from the 52% rate. So if you have a private jet, you, you deduct it from your income, from your revenue, and the federal government effectively picks up half the tab. Yes, seven out of every eight planes were corporate jets in the 1950s. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and then a follow-up on this. One of the other things you say in there, and it struck me, you said also tax evasion was pretty prominent, even though it's illegal, but you say it was widespread. Is that still true today, Brian? I mean, is Elon Musk really evading taxes? Well, I mean, the official IRS figures are what that... Uh, you know, what, 84% of taxes owed are collected. And apparently that's a stable number. Um, but, it, you know, they always kind of concede that 15% of taxes uh, are not collected. Um, I mean, early on in the tax in tax history, I mean, the federal government had no idea how to collect taxes, right? And so when they raised the rate up to 77%, I mean, they didn't immediately have a, a, a an experienced team, bureaucratic team to deal with this. And so there was just evasion all over the place. And the federal government didn't even know how to define evasion. So the early tax law of the 20s is an attempt to do that. And the, the case we point out was not evasion, was Jimmy, uh, was uh, not Jimmy Cagney, uh, George M. Cohen. Uh, George M. Cohen deducted his absolutely blowout expenses, entertaining showgirls and agents and impresarios and, and critics and all these uh, after parties in Broadway. And he just said, you know, here's 10,000, here's 10,000, here's 10,000 off time. And the Revenue Bureau said, this is absurd. You can't deduct any of this. He won in court. So, and then the uh, Revenue Bureau, okay, I guess those are busy. So, even to, what is evasion had to be defined, and it took, you know, 30 years. Right. Do you think it's gotten better, though? I mean, is 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 the evasion more on the, uh, you know, the sole, the small business person that deals in cash or whatever? It, it seems to me like it'd be pretty hard for Warren Buffett to evade. I mean, we can look at these cases. What was the guy in Houston who recently died, um, who had this gigantic evasion case? Um, I, I would simply say that there's uh, the easy way to look at the supply and demand for evasion is, you know, how high is the tax rate? The higher the tax rate at the top, the greater incentive to invade, evade, even if it may be illegal. And the lower the tax rate, the lower the incentive to evade, whatever its legal status so I would assume there's a pretty close relationship between tax evasion and the extent of that top rate. And Brian, we've only got about a half minute. So last question, um, have supply siders won the debate though overall? I mean, we don't see these high tax rates anymore in the 90s, 70%. Have the supply siders won this debate? Well, I think officially uh, the establishment still says that uh, high, high tax rates are better, uh, but in terms of action, there's very little action taking that rate up over 40%. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much. What an honor to be able to talk to you and, and hang with us as we go through a live close. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we com- uh, continue the supply side conversation and our fourth or fifth, I think, interview with George Gilder. Uh, excellent. I will see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage building experiences that connect, remove friction and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 PM. Eastern that's noon Pacific 
In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. Find out what's happening.